The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we thank you that uh, even this last week as we walked through our days and went about the, the task of work and school and responsibilities in our homes and uh, life circumstances that you were generous and providing us providentially a, a range of various trials. Some, some people had more, some people had less, but that we know and can consider them all joy. It's not just a, a prospect or an ideal. It's what you've commanded of us. It's what James has made plain that you expect of, of your people because of the effectual work that you do through various trials as they uh, cultivate perseverance and perseverance having its perfect work will produce itself a perfect and maturing work in us and so we thank you that uh, whatever it is that you were pleased to give us and pleased to put in our path that it wasn't wasted at least it didn't have to be and so lord we we pray that because of um, difficulties and as well as joys and, and as well as matters of progress and matters of uh long-time desires being satisfied or other such matters that we can in all things give thanks to you. And we want to be a people abounding in thanksgiving. And even if it's coming to the, deci- the, the decision, even as James again has, has commanded, consider it, evaluate it. It's, sometimes it is just that. We have to really decide that was an opportunity to have and secure our greater joy. And Lord, we thank you for the, the testimony provided in Proverbs as we read that uh, wisdom is so generously offered. Um, we, we even hear the words of uh, a father speaking to his son and just thinking about um, Matt reading and Gideon right there in the front row and probably hearing it differently than some of us did. Hear my, my son, hear these things and heed them. And, and such is the, the nature of the character of how we are spoken to and encouraged and exhorted. Would you heed wisdom? And wisdom is made attractive as well it should be and it's made available, and so we, we ask, Lord, that we would indeed value um, the precious, precious uh, gift of wisdom and the, the, the ministry that it provides to us, and especially as we will see as we work through James again this morning. We do thank you that you have um, your church, your people in Poland. Um, it surprised me to see um, that there were um, not just lesser things, but uh, I would I'd say counterfeit expressions, things that uh, tragically uh, crowd the field of, of the, the noises and, and uh, confuse people about gospel truths, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses. But yet in the midst of uh, the clutter of such matters, you do have your people, you do have your church, and you, you will keep your church, you will keep your people, you will grow your church. And we just pray that you would have mercy upon them, even perhaps as they are um, worshiping today or maybe this afternoon or evening for them with the, the difference in time that they would be strengthened and satisfied in you and that they would have um, encouragement to, to be bold and to be clear, to be found faithful. Um, I can imagine that's got to be uniquely challenging. Uh, it's, it's challenging to be in a, a minority context in terms of uh, matters of truth, but it's especially when things are confusing to those who may be trying to understand these matters. So help them to persevere, to be found faithful. And we thank you for this uh, local fellowship. Um, by comparative size, we, we too are small, but you've, you've been so gracious to us and you've grown us in grace together. You've knit us together in a, a mutual affection for one another. We've walked together and prayed and strived together and 
um, experienced different seasons of life and other such matters together, and you've, you've been so very kind, and we ask that you'd continue to keep us. It's not inevitable that we will be kept, but uh, it's inevitable that you will keep your church and that you will keep us, but um, we ask that you'd have continued mercy toward this fellowship and that we would grow in our strength and maturity and testimony and love for one another and uh, that we would be found faithful, um, that when you evaluate and you look upon uh, the, the expectations of what it is that a fellowship should be, that we would exemplify that and declare your excellencies and make truth known and encourage one another in such things. And Lord, I pray that you would be at work in that even now as I give attention more directly to uh, the book of James and as we walk through this together. This isn't a, this isn't a lecture that um, parts of it may capture attention and parts may bore, but rather this is an opportunity to, to walk together through the inspired word of God, to, to wrestle, to think, to, to be transformed, to let your spirit work your work as you make your word plain to us. And so I ask that you be my help and the help of all who are present and that we would be found faithful. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're returning to our work in James, and we'll be giving our primary attention to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. But we take on this uh, relatively smaller portion of the letter with a view not only to the book as a whole, but to the context of its larger section too, namely chapter 1, verses 2 through 15, which we've titled Foundations for Wisdom's Path, Wisdom's Path to Perfection. So last week we worked through verses 2 through 4 and the association between those verses and what we'll cover today, it's going to be rather quite clear. So we're going to see the development of a unity within that larger section, and sometimes it's going to be even more explicit, as again today from last week will be, I hope, plain enough to you and help complement what we work through. And then as we continue to progress through this larger section of the book, I'm going to try to, to show you the relationships of the, of the parts as they contribute to their respective section as a whole, demonstrating that James does not simply have a, a general aim in writing some assorted collection of wise truths. Sometimes that's a, a soft critique, and I uh, by critique, it's not necessarily an ugly critique. That's just an evaluation that some come to that well, James had a, a Proverbs-like um, assembly of, of just random truth, truthisms and, 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 and things that are helpful but don't look for continuity, don't look for overt development. But to the contrary, I think that we will see that it's not an assortment of wise truths, but rather he has a clear aim with a clear argument and a clear direction, namely that we would ultimately be pressed to full maturity in Christ and that can only be secured in our walking and wisdom from above. It's what he's going to argue throughout the book. It's what he's going to cultivate throughout the book. And it's it, true, he will have um, different paths and different um, truths that he develops, but all with a, a clear continuity developing to that larger goal, again, that you would be perfected, matured, complete in Christ, a process that is only possible by our submission to walking in the wisdom that comes from above. So today's passage, you'll see, as I've argued already, serves as a foundation for this letter, and it's continuing to lay that very clear foundation. So as we read this larger section of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 15, of which I think our text is a critical part, I think you'll naturally see the relationships beginning to form, especially, again, between what we worked through last week and what we're going to speak to today. So please follow along as we read together James chapter 1, verses 2 through 15. He writes, 
Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Now, some of you, you were following along, you were, you were tracking with me, but you had your attention locked up. So you, if, to, to kind of put an image to that, it's like a, a Windows PC needing another update. You're working, all of a sudden it just stops, it freezes up. You're reading and it stops. Your attention got captured by something. You got frozen in thought for a moment because you followed what we worked through last week. Uh, maybe you were present, maybe you listened, maybe you're just familiar with James and you said, if he paused at verse 4, there was something that I should have gotten that I wish I'd had. It would have been helpful maybe this week. And so you felt the mixture of burden and satisfaction that accompanies the reality that there will be various struggles that will assault our faith. That's a fact that we established. So there's going to be various trials throughout life. That's the natural circumstances and experience of life for the, those in Christ and those who are not. There are natural troubles and struggles in life. However, for those of us who are in Christ, they are purposeful, providentially designed challenges to our faith so as to produce perseverance, so as to produce maturity. But even so, with those matters, with those uh, assaults on our faith as it is, we're commanded to consider them all joy for, for good reason, namely that if we persevere through them faithfully, righteously, in a way that pleases and honors God, then such experiences will produce a persevering work that will see us through to being made perfect, complete, mature. But I stopped with verse 4 last week. And maybe that wasn't the best place to stop. I do think it was a, a reasonable place because of the development of the text, but that wasn't necessarily the most uh, pastoral or maybe even kind place to stop in view of what I was charging you with and in view of the fact that there's more to be said. And so with this, when I was stopping at verse 4, I gave you weighty commands and the precious grounds for us to strive for their faithful application, but I left you with a, without a critical how component. So a lot of times people won't... I want good application, and, and we try to drive to that, and we try to drive to making the text clear and letting the Spirit of God really illuminate and, and make plain some of those dynamics for your life as they, they work themselves out in their own unique circumstances, but I left a pretty important how component out. Now, in fairness, I did emphatically include the how of motivation. So there was a how component of, how do we do this? Well, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's how we can consider it all joy when we experience various trials. But I stopped short of the how of execution. 
So again, you may have been reading along, James 1, 2 through 15, and all of a sudden you're reading, you just stop. He didn't cover that, and I wish he had. Well, we're going to get to it now. Because again, I may have inadvertently treated you like one of my children, and that's not to be demeaning. That's part of my effort to be caring and faithful. And sometimes my efforts, um, they produce life lessons that were not necessarily requested and not necessarily planned. So while attempting to help, I introduced potentially a new struggle. And uh, an example of this, to, to be sympathetic that it's not just you, but I really do introduce these opportunities to my children, even not even on purpose sometimes. This last week, poor Noah had the chore of cutting our lawn, and it had gotten a bit neglected over several days of rain and inopportune schedules, so it was long and thick, which is why I went out of my way to help him by adjusting the height of the wheels in our push mower. So some of you, you say, oh, I love mowing the lawn. I know why you love, riding, uh, love mowing the lawn, because you're riding around, you're thinking about things, and you're, you're contemplating life. You're not a pusher. Us pushers, we don't get as excited about mowing the lawn, so I had to adjust the wheels to make the blade lower and but I inadvertently did something that wasn't particularly helpful. I raised the back wheels and I lowered the front wheels. <laughs> Maximum on both because I thought I was maximizing the height and I effectively created a, a, a lawnmower plow so that he would be pushing and gouging and thoroughly confused and maximizing the difficulty of his success. Now to his credit, he dutifully persevered. And it looked like it. When he finished it, he was exhausted and, and, and rightfully so, but he did it. He pushed through. And through much difficulty, he finished his task. And in a like manner, I realized all too late, I may well have introduced an artificial measure of struggle to your success in applying the precious truths that we worked through this last week. Because it's quite likely that throughout this last week, you've encountered various trials and you've done your best to have persevered through them. And, and I trust that you have. But... And you were even considering them all joy, but at the expense of much struggle, perhaps more than might have been necessary if we'd taken a peek to where James is taking us today, because it's really important where he takes us today. And some of you weren't here, and so you had the good fortune of maybe being like Silas, who also had to cut the grass just yesterday, but after I'd caught my error and made necessary adjustments, and he, adjustments, and he, he labored in a context of relative ease. This is really easy. The grass is shorter, the blades are higher, and that's okay too, because nothing has to have been lost in Noah's struggle if he learned from it, including that there's a better way to struggle. And that's what I want to encourage us to today as well, that I introduced the concept and the prospect of struggling, and that that's okay because we're going to consider it all joy, but I left you with a, a deficient view to how we can do these things. So unlike a bad experience with yard work, what James speaks to here is not simply a better way, but the necessary and invaluable way to struggle, namely by means of wisdom. That's how you can do what we talked about last week in a way that is empowering and necessary. And while natural wisdom would have said, let's pause and, and check our equipment, the wisdom from above gives the necessary insight and skill to navigate far more weighty things with far more precious outcomes. So by way of review, we saw last week that in verses 2 through 4, James provided two commands, the second building off of the first. So the, they were considered all joy and let perseverance have its perfect work. So the foundational command, considered all joy. Consider what all joy? Well, the various trials that come and that assault and ambush your faith. 
and the follow-up command that complements the first one, let perseverance have its perfect work. To what end? So that you also will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And in our examining these commands in their context, we work through the reality that there are various trials that accompany this life, and they will range and wait impact and consequence. We don't know the nature of the struggle the Lord will providentially introduce into our lives, nor the range of them, nor the impact of them, nor any other such matter. But as we've already highlighted, they are all to be accompanied by our evaluating or considering them as all joy. Not because we have some morbid satisfaction with suffering or the range of impacts that trials may bring into the testing of our faith, but because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And when endurance has worked its perfect or complete or mature work, it accomplishes something within us, namely our own maturity, expressed here as our becoming perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Therefore, the nature of our Christian character is both filled and, and rounded out as we bear more of the evidentiary works of the fruit of the Spirit and are increasingly demonstrating Christ in our respected gifting, our personalities, and our experiences. So it's in view of the outcome that various trials, whatever their nature or impact may be, that we can consider them all joy. And now, from the two imperatives that frame verses 2 through 4, we have three more imperatives that will frame our engagement in verses 5 through 8. And the way we've um, translated them and expressed them in English, sometimes they, that's a command? Well, yes. And it's a little more plain in certain contexts, but they're worded as they are, and I hope to draw that out and make that plain for you. But we have three commands here in verses 5 through 8. The first is, let him ask of God. The second, asking, asking in faith, doubting nothing. The third, the one who doubts ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, we could concisely summarize these commands as ask of God, ask in faith, expect nothing when doubting. And so again, maybe a simple walk away as you're wrestling through this and trying to think through it. We had last week, considered all joy. That's an easy thing to get our hands around, hard concept to apply. But now we have the complimentary, ask of God, ask in faith, and expect nothing when doubting. It's an understanding and heeding these commands that we have also the critical how that I left out last week. So this is a really just an invaluable how element of our fulfilling the opening commands. And we can consider our ambushed assaults in our faith as joy when we persevere, persevere through them by means of the wisdom generously supplied by God. That's how we do it. When we exercise the wisdom that God generously provides. So let's begin our more direct engagement now with verses, or with verse 5 which by way of grammar and reasonable argument continues the direct line of exhortation from the preceding verse. Sometimes James will do this. He'll, he'll use a bridge to bridge over to the, or use a word to bridge over to the next section. Sometimes it's more clear. Sometimes it's uh, more rhetorical in use. But here he's clearly using you're lacking in nothing. But if you lack wisdom, if you lack wisdom. So he states again, but if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, James is, I would argue, very pastoral. We, we know from his, the historic context that we work through, that's exactly what he did. We know that he was the half-brother of Jesus. We know he was unbelieving during Jesus' public ministry. We know that he encountered the resurrected Lord, and it wasn't that he ultimately came to faith, as magnificent as that is, and it is. 
but he also faithfully shepherded within the context of Christ's church. And, and it comes through in his writing. He's very pastoral, and he engages his readers, and now us, with, graciously, with a graciously qualified statement to press us toward faithfulness and success. When he states, again, if any of you lacks wisdom, I think, again, that phrase, the way it's worded, the way it's structured is very caring, very generous. And it might sound like, well, that's already kind of demeaning. If any of you lacks wisdom... He's not, he's not unsure of that. Or, and, and he's not just tossing out some general counsel that may or may not apply to the masses. Hey, if anybody here happens to lack wisdom, I, I got something for you. Everybody else, don't worry about it. He's not tossing it out. He's not indifferent. He's not ignorant. He's expressing this in such a manner that he's proposing and affirming it. If any of you lacks wisdom and you do. And again, how is that pastoral? Well, because he's giving us something that will be to our greatest benefit here. So if any of you lacks wisdom and you do, we have something to offer for you. We have instruction, commands for you. Because this is not a critique of one's maturity or intellect, but of the reality that we are engaged, even ambushed by various trials. We don't get to pick their time, their nature, their length, their complexity, or their impact. We do not get to decide if they're common, if they're mundane, if they're profound, or if they're extraordinary. All that we know is that they will come. That's all that we have. It's rather distressing sometimes. It can be disheartening. It can be frightening. But we know they're coming. And when they come, it's our charge, our responsibility, our command, our expectation to persevere through them and to make the intentional valuation that they are all joy. So when I say that James is being pastoral here, when he states, if any of you lack wisdom and you do, there's no shame in what he's introducing here. Rather, it is a profound relief that he offers because of what follows. He's not saying if any of you likes wisdom and you do, so good luck. Hope you persevere well. It's going to be tough. It's tougher when you're not wise. No, he's saying, I know that you like wisdom. None of us have the wisdom to know how to negotiate what's coming before us. These are surprises. These are trials. So what do you do? We're to ask of God for the wisdom that you lack, and he'll give it to you. You're commanded to do something that's for your greatest good and knowing that God will do what he promises to do. That to me is extraordinary. And we'll take some time to investigate this command and its beauty, but first, something may have popped in your mind for just a moment. This whole idea of being commanded to ask. Well, it sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? It sounds like, G uh, it sounds like James is echoing Jesus here. And we know that James does that. He actually, arguably, the critique is, well, he's not clear in his Christology James is magnificently clear in his Christology, especially given where he was in redemptive history in the context of the development of the church and the cultural context. But he, as you remember, echoes the testimony and words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, arguably, proportionately, more than anybody else. And he does it again here. Because we here, here we have both James and Jesus both commanding us to ask of God and knowing that we ask not in vain because he is a good and generous Father who provides more perfectly for his beloved than we know to provide for ourselves. That's if, even if we could. So perhaps this is what was rightfully coming to your mind, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, where Jesus himself commands, ask. You ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Again, a precious and affirming reminder that our Heavenly Father hears our request and gives generously. And a truth that was no less true when James wrote of our needs here, and a truth that is certainly no less true now either, as we too lack necessary wisdom. He could write to our congregation. He could write to us. He could speak right here and say, if any of you lacks wisdom, and you do, and that's okay, because that's not where we're left. A lacking that is not a matter of shame, but of a common reality. And a lacking that is generously resolved by our Heavenly Father when we heed the command to ask. And that's exactly what James has now commanded here. Ask and continue asking because the Lord generously and continuously provides. But we should pause for a moment to maybe to better understand these matters. Specifically, how should we understand wisdom so as to appreciate our, our lack of it and requesting it and, and our confidently receiving it? So let's consider the nature, the identity, and quality of wisdom. So we have some Maybe some foundational understandings. I think we could probably poll the congregation. Um, I think we're, we're very fortunate. It's a very biblically literate group. Uh, you're faithful students of the scripture. You read, you study, you listen, you grow. And so I think we could probably poll each other as to how we might express wisdom and likely say things like um, the, the act of skillful living or putting knowledge to action in ways pleasing to God or maybe even just insightful understanding. And that's sufficient. That's, that's sort of accurate expressions of wisdom. But it's always a good practice to allow a given author who speaks to the subject to provide a more precise expression of what they are communicating. So if, if James has an exhortation, a command toward wisdom, does he talk about wisdom? Does he, does he open more to that truth? Does he define it? Does he describe it? What does he do? Well, as it pertains to wisdom, James provides his most complete treatment of the subject in chapter 3 in a section that's been grammatically and textually identified as kind of the, the purpose statement of the book. It's a, it's a driving pinnacle of the book, a passage in which he contrasts two expressions of wisdom, wisdom from below and wisdom from above. So in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, he writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, as you may have noticed in this more complete articulation of how James would have us understand wisdom, he's provided us more of a, a description than a definition. It wasn't necessarily, this is wisdom, but he's, he's, he's described wisdom. But perhaps this should not come as a surprise to us as James is consistent in his practice of expressing a matter by way of its expectation for action or demonstrable works. If you want to ask James about something, he's probably going to tell you, what does it do? That's what he's interested in. He drives you to action. So not unlike his fuller treatment of faith, wisdom is expressed and even defined through works. Wisdom does things. Wisdom looks like something. Wisdom takes action. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And 
I would draw to your attention here that in addition to the proactive expressions of righteous conduct, we can plainly see that the wisdom from above has among its defining elements the absence of something, namely the absence of doubting, which will soon be a matter of great importance to James as we advance in this command, commanded request to God. But because James has more uh, described than he's defined wisdom, I'll provide a few definitions that I think are, I think are well expressed. So the first one from George Guthrie, he states, Wisdom here um, connotates an understanding of the ways of God and a readiness to act according to those ways. So this is a, I'd say a, a common but clear way to express biblical wisdom. And it's similar, but in a, in a similar but much more concise way, Alistair Begg defined wisdom as living God's way in God's world. So that's really simple, but sometimes the simple things we get our hands around tuck them in our pocket, remember them. So I think that's a helpful one to keep in the the fore of one's mind, living God's way in God's world. Now, a more full definition and one that has a view to the historical, cultural, and immediate context has been provided by D. Edmund Hebert, who stated, as a Jew, James viewed wisdom as related to the practice of righteousness in daily life. It is the moral discernment that enables the believer to meet life and its trials with decisions and actions consistent with God's will. And I think that's a, I think that's a good working definition and one that has an active view to the clear Jewish context of James's letter. But as important is the qualification of whom the truest definition of wisdom applies itself toward, namely the beloved. It's not knowing and exercising God's ways by those who don't even know the Lord. This is an exercising of wisdom that is uh, implicitly applied and understood by the beloved. And we say this recognizing that wisdom, you know, in a broad sense, can be obtained by many who are willing to observe and apply good principles to life. You know, many cultures and, and belief systems would affirm wise principles, and thankfully so, or this world would be even more messier than it is right now. So thankfully, there's a, there's a common expression of wisdom that People operate with. So we have traffic laws. That's common wisdom. You know, large, heavy vehicles probably shouldn't go but so fast in certain circumstances. Well, that's wisdom. There's certain things people shouldn't do to each other. Well, that's wisdom. Doesn't necessarily mean it was divine wisdom, but it's, it's wisdom, and we're grateful for that. But outside of Christ, one will not experience or avail themselves of the wisdom from above, the wisdom that God generously provides that he single-mindedly gives for the purpose of making sure that we can and will skillfully persevere through various trials that assault our faith, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, these definitions are helpful because they remind us that James is not speaking to uh, just of insightful living in some generic fashion, rather he's speaking to an application of God's truth insight and help for those who know and love the Lord so that they might walk in his ways by his means. And this is exactly what we need when negotiating the challenges of various trials, especially when expected to consider them all joy. And this now prepares us for the fact that James is not strongly encouraging or even counseling us toward the good practice of asking God for wisdom. He's commanding us to ask and to continue asking in prayer that God would provide us with the wisdom from above. Because while lacking wisdom is, is not a shameful or even embarrassing place to find oneself, it is an unacceptable place to remain. So b- being in a place where James or someone could say, if any of you likes wisdom and you do, that's okay. As long as that's not where you stay. 
And so, because the, the invitation is to ask, it's not even just an invitation, it's actually a command. So it's an unacceptable place to remain as a faith-filled believer because with each of the various trials that come, you will find that outside of God's continued supernatural provision of wisdom, you will not have a necessary quality to engage these various trials in a successful way so as to cultivate perseverance, seeing it through to its perfect work, which in turn will see you through to being perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So it is that critical component that to my embarrassment, I left out last week. I gave you all the exhortations and all the right things, but you needed wisdom. And I think by default, you naturally know, Lord, help me, give me wisdom. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I want to draw again, that's the means by which we do that successfully. And so we have the command to ask, which proves to be God's primary means of securing the necessary wisdom to negotiate our trials and this command to ask may feel a little more natural than the one that we opened the letter with, that James opened the letter with, namely a command to evaluate your own experiences in a prescribed way. That's hard to be commanded to, to evaluate something that's hard as joy. But this one's much more natural. So asking is a, is a natural response. That's why I wasn't terribly concerned. I know that if you're walking in grace, you don't have to be told how to do everything in all circumstances. There's an advantage to exhortation, encouragement, and direction. But I think by default, you are probably asking for wisdom. Now we're just going to draw out the fact that that's not just a good practice, it's a commanded practice. So again, it's a natural response when a condition of needing something. And here it is plain that we need wisdom because we lack sufficient or necessary wisdom for our trials. Now, as we consider this command to ask, I thought it'd be interesting to investigate not simply where the verb of asking was used throughout the New Testament, but even more precisely, where and how was it commanded? So just curious, here's this command to ask, and how often is that framed in the scriptures, and who it tells us ask for something? And I found that there were only two people who commanded us to ask for something in the New Testament, Jesus and the man known to echo his Lord's teachings, namely James. And so, of the 70 times that the verb for ask is used throughout the New Testament, it's only commanded six times. Four times by Jesus, with two of those being in Matthew and Luke's respective accounts of the Sermon on the Mount, and then twice in the Upper Room Discourse as recorded by John. All six of these accounts, though, have something in common. All six of these accounts by, uh, commanded by Jesus and James are directed to God, be it God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. And James's commands both come here in our immediate passage where they focus on the call to ask, the character of the one to whom we ask, and then the how one must ask. And so we see that the asking is directed to God, rooted in God's character, and James carries that over even here, again reflecting on the call to ask, the character of the one who we're asking, and the, the how, namely in faith and without doubting. It's not just ask, it has a prescribed method and manner to be asked. And so we have a God-oriented command that in no small way informs our prayers, thoughts, and conduct. And it is a command that not only orients us to God, but also expresses his character, namely that he gives to all generously and without reproach. That's not just a statement of fact, that's a statement of both fact and character. Again, to all those who heed this command, we know the Lord generously gives. He gives generously or in a way that reflects not only his abundance, but his satisfaction in giving wisdom in the fullest and kindest of ways. And so I think that's very, boy, does that not inform our worship, not only our, our disposition toward walking in obedience, but our worship as well. The Lord commands us to do that for our highest good. He gives to us 
That's the thing we can be confident in, but he gives generously, and that's a reflection of his character. This is not an expression of providing just enough help to let you scrape by, but rather enough help to let you thrive. So it's not that the Lord's saying, well, good, I'm going to give you just enough to make sure you keep asking. No, he's commanded, you ask, because it's for your greatest good and my glory, but I'm going to give you enough to thrive, to walk in joy as you encounter various trials. Now, while not common in our translations, many commentators argue with a, a range of support for how terms are used in different grammatical and contextual ways. And here, the, whether or not the text perhaps should be read and understood as stating that, God will, that while God does give generously, perhaps maybe we should say that James is more directly expressing here that God gives single-mindedly or with singular purpose. And, and there's good grounds for that argument. And I'm not bringing that up to just kind of like, oh, look, there's different arguments in these textual matters and they're different word choices, but because there's a potential advantage to our better understanding this. And so, again, there's, there's good reason that we can say he does give generously. That, I think that's what he says here, and it's supported throughout the, the expressions of the character of God. However, it's also argued there's good grounds to say here not only does he give generously, but single-mindedly, singular of purpose. Namely, that he's giving what we need to fulfill which he has called us to and that which is pleasing to him. And this also would be a clear expression of God's character. So in view of this and the, the rightful conclusion that our own character is expected to be modeled after God's character, it's argued that single-mindedness perhaps better fits the continued context of the passage, uh, supporting the expectation that we, like God, should be single-minded in our purposes of obedience and fault, thereby setting us up for the forthcoming rebuke of the double-minded man. So God, singular in purpose and generously giving to his beloved, and the character that's reflected there that should be reflected in our character is contrasted with the rebuke of the character of the double-minded man, the one who's divided in his thoughts, or who lacks the singleness of thought, singleness of heart, singleness of resolve. So again, while there may be a degree of spirited discussion among translators and scholars, we can all settle on the fact that here we have a rich expression of God's character, which can be affirmed as both generous and single-minded in purpose as he provides wisdom for our needs. But James also reminds us that the Lord gives without reproach. And that might sound like a peculiar qualification. I I didn't stumble over it, but I went through multiple translations. What does that mean? It doesn't give with reproach. I don't even, that doesn't, it's not how I naturally would say, here, I'm giving this without reproach or without um, rebuke towards you or without correction or without disdain for you. But it, it's not necessarily a peculiar qualification. It should not be viewed as peculiar, but precious as we're asking from a place of deficiency. We're asking because we need. He gives generously. He gives single-mindedly and without rebuke or without um, without uh, qualifi- excuse me, without the uh, reproach, as it were. So, though we come as ones in need, there is no reprimand. There's no chiding. There's no reminder that, boy, you've already been generously provided so much, and you're coming for need of wisdom again. No, it's a, there's no reproach. There's no shame in this. By contrast, we're to continue asking while knowing that he will continue giving. So in these matters, I would argue that James is pastorally caring for us, and easily so as he's drawing on the character of God, proactively reminding us that God places no stigma of rebuke or judgment on those in need and petitioning for his wisdom, and that to concede a need for help to God bears no shame, only the assurance that he will provide generously and with a singular view to what we need. And before we move on to the balance 
of the passage. I hope another seemingly small detail proves to be encouraging here too, namely that God gives generously this wisdom to all who ask. To all who ask. God's giving of wisdom is not restricted to some elite or set-apart group that has the market of, uh, on insight and understanding. It's available to all who ask in faith. Now, that does not diminish merits, uh, the, the, the merit of years of study and prayer and overall maturity, which is why it's still good practice to, to counsel one another and to learn from others' insights and experiences and their own acquiring of wisdom, especially as these may prove to be many of God's means for our own cultivation of his wisdom. But again, it must not be overlooked that the commandment is to all who are in Christ, as there are its benefits which is also why some of the best counsel will be to direct you to prayer for wisdom and to join you in this great but sure ask. And so sometimes we can get discouraged. We come to somebody, we come to them with a various trial that's complex. It hadn't, nobody's seen it before, at least we hadn't. We don't know what to do. And so we say, I don't know, you should labor in prayer and I'm going to join you in that. And if we have the, oh, they didn't tell me what to do. They didn't give me good counsel. That was probably the best counsel they did because they told you to do what you've been commanded to, knowing that the Lord will give wisdom to walk through that trial effectively. And so it's a generous offer he provides for us to all who ask. Now, while I left you in a tough spot last week, I could not have done you a better service today because God generously and single-mindedly provides the means to your successful, even joyful perseverance. Namely, he provides wisdom, and he is not hoping you will avail yourself of this kind gift, but in his most perfect care, he requires that you ask him of it and know that he will provide. And again, now with the balance of our time, we're going to see that James gives significant attention to another uh, critical qualification. And with that, uh, the rebuke if you fail to heed it. So the balance, really, of our passage, disproportionate. The time of exhortation, encouragement, and teaching was really in verse 5, but if you look at the weight of the treatment, 6, 7, and 8, is actually toward qualification and rebuke. The balance of time is going to be opposite for us, but I want you to see the weight of how James balances it. So again, we've given significant attention to the, the, um, to the matter of asking now we need to give attention to that critical qualification. It's not just asking, but it's ask in a particular way, a very clear way, and then the shameful peril of it not being executed as commanded. So you can mess up this ask, and you can fail to avail yourself of that which the Lord has commanded he will offer you. So we need to pay close attention to such matters. And here is that absolutely necessary qualification. He any of the beloved must ask in faith, doubting nothing. Now, having provided the command to ask for wisdom, James goes on to provide this supporting command that prescribes how one is to ask in faith and doubting nothing. That's a severe, weighty qualification. You can't just say, well, I asked God for wisdom. Did you ask in faith without doubting? So as important as this qualification is, we'll pause once more to consider the matter of faith and its contrasting counterpart of doubt. Now, even though James has much to say about faith in this letter, he does not necessarily define it. So we've been down this route with wisdom, so also with faith. He doesn't necessarily define it. And this is a context in which a, a definition will serve us better than a description, which we could sum up if we wanted to say, well, how does he describe faith? Well, we'd say that living faith is a working faith. And now you've gotten James's 
summary understanding and articulation of faith. But let's work toward a definition at this time. So here we have the author of Hebrews does not provide us, or he does provide us a concise definition for faith. And I think it's one that can provide some helpful insights beyond his own immediate context. He was obviously writing in a view of his letter, but it's one of those that we can take that principle, take that definition and apply it very broadly, very generously. So here we have in Hebrews 11, um, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, the author of Hebrews states, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So how might this fit in the context of James specifically in asking for wisdom? Well, when we understand that when God, through his word, commands us to ask him for wisdom, we in turn act with the confident understanding that he indeed will generously supply wisdom to us. And in this, we are expressing an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. We are exercising faith. That is, unless... There's a qualification there, unless we've introduced doubt into this equation, in which case we are by definition no longer exercising faith, rather we are forfeiting assurance and or conviction. And asking with doubt, we're operating possibly under compulsion of the command. So we've been commanded to do it, so I'll do it, but we're not even doing it properly. We've been charged with, or perhaps even out of some um, form of hopelessness or of securing a favorable outcome. So I'm going to ask, I just don't expect I'm not really sure that God's going to do what I'm asking. And, you know, it's a big ask, and it's a, it's, a, it's a weighty thing. It's complex, or who knows? Maybe Why would I presume on God? After all, maybe the Lord will provide sufficient wisdom in our asking, but, you know, maybe not. It's just what it is, either because maybe he's indifferent to his promises, or maybe even he's just unable to keep them. Well, that's a rather disgusting line of thought, is it not? But such is the language of doubt. When you introduce you know, he's commanded me to do it, and he said he would do this in response, but I'm just, not in this situation, or it doesn't really work like that, or, you know, that's an ideal. Well, now you've just basically said either God's not true to his word, or he's just not able to be true, although he, he sure would like to be. That's the nature of doubt, and that's how ugly doubt is. You don't need to put makeup on it, it's disgusting. So the infusing of doubt into God's good commands is ugly and worthy of the rebuke that it receives in the exposing of such a person to be double-minded and unstable. Now, if we were simply speaking of asking a man or even some other creature of any stature, we might could possibly be sympathetic to this misstep. Now, personally, I would have no choice but to be open to some measure of understanding as my own task list. I love them. I, I cultivate them. I work on them constantly. But many an item has died. Many an item has gone from due and the, on this date to red. It was due. And it was due a long time ago. And it just, the gap increases. Or I don't think it's going to happen now. Or I'll reschedule it. The, the, the well-intended desire, the, the commitments, the expectations. We, we come up short. We, we fail in these areas. Somebody, maybe we offer, hey, if you need help, just ask. And then someone asks and kind of busy. Or they ask and we don't get back to them. We're deficient. We fail. But this is not a man or any other creature. We are commanded to ask God. And in prayer, we ask God for that which he clearly states he provides generously and without reproach. So to be clear, faith that pleases God, and in this case, faith that accompanies this clear command, leaves no room for doubting. It is not confidence in God with the qualification that we're open to the fact he may or may not do what he stated he would do. At best, this is insulting. Fair enough? That would be insulting. 
And at worst, it could be grounds to more carefully evaluate the nature of one's faith more broadly. Because if the Lord cannot provide wisdom, then how, could he be con- how can we be confident that he could do something more magnificent, you know, like transform hearts of stone? I don't know. I mean, he can't even handle a request for wisdom. So while it's tempting to presume that we trust God in the larger sweep of things, but not necessarily in the more minute matters of life, we would do well to remember that it's the more minute matters that provide the clearest picture of the depth of our confidence, particularly as he is the God who counts hairs and feeds birds. He does not miss the details. And being, this, being as this is framed in the context of asking in prayer, I think Hebert's statement about the expression of theology in prayer is most helpful here. He states, believing prayer takes its stand upon the character of God. That's the nature of believing prayer. It roots itself in the character of God. That's why we ask, because we ask knowing that he gives. We ask knowing that he's commanded us to and that he will give. This is why such doubting is not only an obstruction of being heard and enjoying the benefits thereof, but a direct assault on the character of God. Now, someone may think that I'm being a little disproportionate in my critique here of, of the one who introduces doubt. You know, everybody doubts. Why you got to be so hard on the doubters and, and the people that are struggling with doubt? After all, is it not severe enough that they're missing out on enjoying the benefits of God's wisdom? They're already suffering in that regard. They already experienced various trials. They're not availing themselves of the wisdom from above, and now you're going to just pile on top of them? Well, that is a severe tragedy, but perhaps not as severe as the nature of their offense, which is an assault on the character of God. Don't let your various trials become a grounds for your deficient theology to assault the character of God. So it's not just a command to make you feel better. It's a command that we walk in joyful obedience and confidence to him. And in his kindness, he helps us to prevail through them. The circumstances, the various trials. And to appreciate the weight that James brings to this matter, just consider the manner of description that he goes on to provide for the offender here. It doesn't surprise you that this is Jude's brother. He states, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here we have a, a graphic picture of waves churning in the open waters, lacking any internal fortitude or control of their destiny, always subject to the demands of the wind. This is an image of weakness that is not strengthened. Rather, it's a weakness that collapses upon itself and has no prospect of coming through trials with any measure of success or benefit. And one cannot excuse this as a matter of personality, perhaps even one that lacks drive or determination, because this is not a matter of personality, this is a matter of character, one that lacks the confidence and resolve to stand at all, much less in a proper confidence in God. In transitioning, from a natural illustration of the waves tossed about or the water turned about to that of the person directly, James calls them a double-minded man, one who is unstable in all his ways. Now, this term for double-minded may have its roots uh, and other expectations expressed in the scriptures, here serving as a contrast to the one who loves and obeys the Lord with their, their whole heart and other like references. So the implication would be, you would have a divided heart if you fail to love the Lord with your whole heart. So maybe that's part of the historic grounds that Jude is, or that James is drawing from. But James is the, uh, the man who appears to have pioneered the term in Greek literature. So we don't find double-minded man before James. And then afterwards, a lot of people avail themselves of it because it's a good picture. And it plainly captures the idea of asking God for that which he has commanded you to ask of him while unsure of his provision. I'm going to do what you've commanded. I'm going to ask you, but I'm just not sure that you're really able to make good on it. It's trying to hold two opposing thoughts at once. It doesn't work. You might be able to hold two things at once, but you cannot hold two opposing thoughts. That's an impossible proposition. 
The double-minded man is like having a split personality with one claiming a desire for the things of God and the other lesser things. That's distressing. That's troublesome. That's not good. That's not stable. It's a shameful identification and not a sympathetic struggle. It's not, oh, they're double-minded. It's, whoa, that's frightening. That's embarrassing. It's worthy of rebuke. It's the antithesis to both maturity and a life pleasing to God. Wanting and not wanting, seeking and not seeking, pursuing and not pursuing, all are as inconsistent as they sound and will put a person to ruin, spiritual ruin and a ruin in the whole of their lives. And these are all matters of plain observation that James draws out throughout this book as one cannot separate the spiritual from the rest of life. That's part of why James is so practical and so action-oriented. He says this is what it looks like. This is what maturity looks like. You can't hold the two opposing things at the same time. And he's pressing us toward consistency, faithfulness, and maturity, and perfection in such things. Because one who is in their character, petition, and contact before God, uh, because who one is in their character and their petition and conduct before God is who they are in the whole of their life. Which is why James would again conclude that they are unstable in all of their ways. It's not just, well, they're struggling here. Now, this is indicative of there's some problems. They lack the firmness to walk well. So we can see that when this passage is observed as a whole, not just thinking about the generous offer for wisdom and those who will or will not avail themselves of it, the text is quite striking. James is speaking to a fundamental character quality that must be pursued, being a person of confident faith who avails themselves of God's generous gifts, but he also speaks to a detrimental character quality that must be viewed as odious and therefore forsaken, being a person who mingles doubt in their expressions of faith. So while we've ascended, I would say, to great heights while examining the magnificently gracious command of verses 5 and as it carries out to verse 6, we finish on a more somber and low element here with the elements addressed in those in the final verses so what a magnificent ask knowing that you'll receive ask in faith not doubting and then we had to go to but if you doubt and it's really unfortunate that qualification was necessary and the weight of it and the force of it but it was necessary because such is the nature the severity of the offense and the impact it has on the fact that you will not enjoy the wisdom of God the wisdom from above that is only because we're stopping before we finish. That's why we're finishing on a kind of a mm note. Because like we experienced last week, there's more to be said. James doesn't presume that we're going to stop at verse 8. He presumes that we're going to carry on that, you know, following 8 is verse 9, and then verse 10, and then verse 11, and 12, all that remains before us. And so I don't want you to see this and be like, wow, there was a high, there was a low, And we just finish there because that's not how James finishes. If we learned something from last week, and I hope we learned a lot of things, is that there's more to this, isn't there? And it's cultivating, and it's building, and it's maturing, and it's pressing us. But we're working through these texts in pieces. And fortunately for us today, we're not left without a critical how this time. We have the how. We now have it added to our repertoire of commands. Ask of God. Ask in faith, but also expect nothing when doubting. So whatever various trials may come, and they will come, we don't know what, when, or how, consider them all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, which itself will ultimately produce greater maturity in you. And to persevere well, ask. Ask our generous, single-purposed Heavenly Father for the wisdom necessary to negotiate these trials in a way that is faithful and pleasing to Him. Ask knowing that He always provides accordingly. All right, so let's now 
exercise that command. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking for wisdom, asking for help, and asking to be found faithful. Lord, I think about, um, as we finish, I think about one of the items that is in my, my prayer list that I pray for the, the matters of counsel that I may be asked to provide at the spur of a moment. There's, there's seasons in life in which we don't know what's coming and someone may, may seek out our counsel. And so this is what I do. I ask that you would give wisdom. And that's what we want to do now, Lord. We, we don't know what you have for us. We don't know in terms of what your kind providential care will use to shape us into conformity of Christ. And so we ask even now, Lord, would you give us wisdom? And would you give us the grace to genuinely believe that you are a giver of all good things, that you will give as you've, as you've stated you would, that you are faithful, and not to mingle doubt into that, not to insult you, not to belittle, not to, to make uh, other things more elevated. And so, Lord, would you give us help even in our asking? And we are confident you will give wisdom. You will give the, the necessary skill and insight to negotiate trials well and that may not look like it in the moment and that's okay that's part of our exercising faith that it doesn't look like i have wisdom to negotiate these things i'm confident that god gives it generously but i don't understand how it's working and that's okay a lot of things we look back on and see and a lot of things that we we persevere through and we have no idea how but by the grace of god did we get through it and part of that grace is wisdom wisdom from above and so lord would you be pleased to provide such wisdom would you be pleased to give us the, the grace to, to see and to hear and to understand truth as it's mingled into our thoughts, as it's impacted by our, our efforts and study and labor and teaching and listening and growing and speaking to one another? Would the Spirit of God be pleased to illuminate truth to our minds as, the, as, as matters come into our lives, as we would naturally have a reaction? May wisdom prevail to, to help us to think rightly and to, to respond better? Not to the end that we'd feel better about ourselves, but so that we would persevere. Not to the end that we would be uh, delivered from all trials, but that we would persevere. And we want to persevere because it's going to bring us into conformity to Christ. And, and that you are honored. And that you're made much of. And so to this end, we pray, Lord, make much of your name in making us an increasingly wise people and a people that return back to you thanksgiving and worship as we reflect on the kindness you've expressed and the, the, the grace that we've experienced through various trials. Lord, we give thanks to you. Pray that we continue to be found faithful now and give us help as we sing. May we believe what we sing. Give us help as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. May we believe that which we remember. And Lord, may through all these things, again, you make much of yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.